This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Scott Fujimoto is a PhD student at McGill University and Mila. He's the author of the TD3 algorithm, as well as some of the recent developments in batch deep reinforcement learning. Scott, I'm super stoked to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Robin. Great. So I wonder if we can start with the TD3. Uh, so you have a paper from 2018 addressing function approximation error in actor critic methods. Uh, can you tell us how this TD3 paper came about? Yeah, right. It's it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, to some extent, TD3 was a fluke. Uh, it was actually my first paper as a master's student. And we had been sort of working on this kind of, I don't know, radical out there idea that you have as a master's student. You know? And in hindsight, it, it, it didn't really work. Um, but we started with um, uh, implementing uh, DDPG with this sort of idea built into it. And we ran it on uh, Hapchita, which is one of these Majoko simulated locomotion tasks. Uh, and on this first run, we got these really like crazy results. And they're just way better than anything that we had seen before at the time, like two times better than anything else. My first thought was like, oh my God, we've solved reinforcement learning. You know, <laughs> this is it. This is the greatest thing ever, right? Um, you know, but of course, you know, we're scientists. So we, we, we started to dig into it a little bit more. And we, we started coming up with these ideas built around function approximation in value, uh, in value learning, right? Which was sort of the idea, the original idea was sort of built on that, but, um, you know, it wasn't right, but it, it sort of started us off in this, this right direction. And it turns out that, like, almost all of the improvement that we got in the beginning was actually just, like, these kind of implementation-level details. But this excitement of, like, a, a big fake breakthrough uh, really pushed us in the right direction for actually making these real improvements. So although we never really like significantly <laughs> improved over our initial results, we ended up with these like a collection of, of actual ideas that actually genuinely worked, uh, all that uh, put on top of DDPG, and and that sort of created TD3. Great. And then so TD3, I think in your paper you mentioned three major aspects that it adds to DDPG. Um, did they? So did you? Did all these ideas emerge at once, or did you kind of pursue them one at a time? And maybe you could walk us through those. Right. So, yeah, TD3 is, is these three uh, core concepts uh, that are just added on top of DDPG. Uh, it's all centered around this idea that uh, when you're dealing with a deep reinforcement learning and actor-critic methods, you have this neural network, this function approximation, and, and that means you know, we're, we're relying on generalization for a lot of things, and there's going to be this function approximation error. And so that means there's essentially two aspects that we wanted to address. There's the symptoms of function approximation error, which is essentially overestimation bias. Um, and then there's sort of this root cause, which is the, you know, the function approximation error itself and sort of the high variance that comes from that uh, and, and some of the propagation of errors along, alongside. Fortunately, there was like a lot of really nice papers in, in overestimation bias already, specifically double Q learning. We, we were looking at double Q learning and we're we were asking, well, why isn't anyone using this for DDPG? Is overestimation bias not a real problem for these actor critic methods? Like, you know, what's going on here? So the first thing, our first main improvement, which is the twin in TD3. Well, TD3, I should say, stands for twin delayed DDPG and TD3 for short. So twin comes from this idea of we have two Q networks, and this is similar to uh, double Q learning, uh, which is a common method for discrete RL. Uh, you, we take two Q networks, and then we're sort of estimating the value. We'll actually just take the minimum over the two, which is very similar to what double Q learning does, um, but it's a little bit more, uh, I guess. The delayed has to do with uh, this idea of 
um, uh, value convergence to some extent. So in, in value-based learning, we have these target networks that we use in DeepRL. And we were asking, you know, what are the role of these target networks? How, why are they important? Um, and it, what it boils down to is they come, they relate a lot to this framework, I guess, fitted queue iteration, where we treat reinforcement learning something like a supervised learning problem, where you want to, um, uh, you set up your problem and then you essentially, uh, you have a nice value target and you want your networks to sort of converge towards this value target doing one Bellman update and then we'll update everything. And the target network sort of approximates that by letting you do that sort of uh, at portions portions of the uh, state or state and action space as opposed to doing everything in your replay buffer. And so we were looking at that idea and what we found is that actually using uh, uh, some mixture of, uh, of ideas from, from target networks, uh, we were able to improve learning and stability by actually just um, delaying the policy update, which really means we update the policy at a lower frequency than we update the critic. And, and that sort of helps uh, allow the value estimate converge before you make an update to the policy, which sort of improves stability. And then the final uh, thing is something a little bit smaller. It's just a regularization strategy where we do something similar to SARSA, where you add a little bit of noise to the target actions in the value-based update. And then that sort of reduces variance a, basic, uh, a little bit. So yeah, all these three ideas come together for TD3. The first one is to do with overestimation bias, and the next two are sort of dealing with sort of the variance uh, and, and instability problems that come from function approximation error. Cool, and then could you tell us a little bit more about that third one, uh, it's related to SARSA? How I was looking through the code and, and actually trying to understand that one. That, that one I found a little harder. It's not too complicated. The idea is that when you're evaluating the, the uh, value of an action, in continuous space, we have uh, meaningful distance measurement bef between actions, right? So in discrete action space, you know, action A and action B could be radically different. But in continuous action space, we know that something, you know, the action 0 and the action 0 0.1 or everything in between uh, is some, something similar. So the idea is that although there might be error on action 0 and there will be some error on action 0.1, those are not necessarily correlated. Or maybe they will be a little bit. But at the very least, averaging the value between those actions should give you a lower variance estimate. So what we're actually doing is we're adding a little bit of noise to the policy. And then um, over multiple updates, we're actually averaging over a small range around the action. So rather than use just a deterministic policy, we're using a, a policy with a little bit of noise added to it in the target update. And the other small little detail that we do is because when you add noise, sometimes you'll get a, an action that's actually quite far away. You know, if you think about the Gaussian, some are close, some are far. We'll just clip the Gaussian. So uh, uh, we'll only look at actions that are within a, a small enough range such that it's a meaningful measurement of the, the mean action that we're looking at. TD3 is, um, I, I think if I understand correctly, it's either state of the art on some problems right now. Is that correct? It's either, when you're looking at these off-policy algorithms for continuous control, especially the Majoko task, you're really thinking about TD3 or SAC. And at the, that point, they're, they're very similar algorithms. Um, SAC, at least the most recent version, includes sort of our uh, ideas in uh, double-Q learning into it. Uh, after the fact, they, the algorithms look quite similar as a result. So yeah, the, the performance between the two are very similar, and they're definitely a step ahead of some of the other popular algorithms like uh, PPO or TRPO. Okay, and then SAC adds this uh, concept of maximizing entropy. Is that a relevant concept in, in the world of TD3? Um, yeah, it's actually some, there's like a, a weird relationship that just sort of happened where SAC is 
like a, or maybe I should say it the other way around. TD3 is like a deterministic version of SAC. They actually have somewhat similar ideas. For example, this sort of SARSA style update that we talked about sort of arrives naturally in SAC because it's a stochastic policy. They both use the clip double Q learning, which is the, the twin in TD3. Uh, and they're, you know, they're both off policy uh, RL algorithms. Is the maximum entropy relevant in SAC? It is, of course. Um, the the results in SAC are, are great. Uh, empirically, the papers get very similar performance uh, on most tasks. Uh, but I believe SAC usually edges out TD3 in the long run. Um, this maximum entry thing adds something for exploration. So if you run the algorithm for, I don't know, 5 million time steps or something, you'll start to see SAC edge out TD3 a little bit more. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, <laughs> to, make a, to make a pitch for my own argument, um, from our own algorithm, uh, it, it, TD3 is much simpler to implement and uh, tends to run a little bit faster just on wall clock time. So, It is remarkably um, elegant, and I, I think that's definitely a beautiful thing, especially in this space where uh, there's just so much complexity everywhere you look. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things, like when we first started getting into it, there's a lot of algorithms that are just hard to get to work, basically. Uh, uh, PPO, for example, is, is an example of an algorithm where um, once you have it set up nicely, it runs on most problems without having to tune it. But getting it working in the first place is is not an easy thing. So with TD3, we wanted an algorithm that was uh, straightforward and, and, and easily understood. So another algorithm in this DDPG family uh, is D4PG. Um, and that adds a few things, distributed actors, distri distributional critic, and these end-step returns. Um, I wonder, are these are these things... Uh, is D D4PG still relevant, and are are, are these um, additions also relevant still? Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny that you asked that, right? I think D4PG is like a 2017 or 2018 paper, and it's true that it's like less relevant now today. But it's a uh, shows how fast the field moves, I guess, right? That a paper so recent is already possibly outdated. Um, because it's a distributed algorithm, it's it's somewhat yeah, it's definitely orthogonal. It's sort of in a different world. Um, you know, they're using a lot of data, they're running things in parallel. Of course, they get really nice results. And all the improvements, uh, yeah, are totally orthogonal to TD3. TD3, the idea really was, here's some improvements to actor-critic algorithms with, with deep learning. Uh, and ideally, you could take those improvements and just throw them on top of any actor-critic algorithm. It just so happens that DDPG was like the prime candidate. But there's no reason why you can combine it with D4PG and then use like the, the distributional critic with... I mean, maybe it would take a, a little bit of thinking about how to combine that exactly, but uh, it's definitely possible, and there's no reason why there's uh, uh, any conflict there. When we look at something like TD3, that's state-of-the-art, like how far are we from you know squeezing the most possible out of these continuous action trajectories? Is there any sense of how much further we can go? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that, actually, because, well, when we first came out with TD3, I thought, well, this this has got to be the end. Like, we just had PPO, and it was getting good performance, and now we've edged it out a little bit more. And, like, how much more can we really push these environments? And when you, you actually visualize the tasks, too, like, they seem to be working really, really well. So it's like, how much more can we get? And then SAC came out, and, and you know, in the long run, it outperforms TD3, so we saw even more performance. And actually, recently, there was a paper, uh, I believe, from DeepMind called VMPO. And they're, again, they're looking at the sort of distributed setting. So they're using tons of parallel actors and um, a lot of data, like in the billions of data points, so a crazy amount. But one of the interesting things, at least for me from that paper, was that they were actually uh, able to get even more performance. So they tested, at least on uh, Walker and Ant, 
and uh, their performance is like 50% higher than the final performance of SAC. And I don't know what would happen if you ran SAC or TD3 for um, you know a billion time steps. I, I mean, in the paper, we're looking at 1 million time steps for some perspective. So a billion is just a crazy amount. But there is, I guess, room for improvement there. And the other interesting thing, of course, is that there's definitely room for improvement in the sample efficiency. For example, on some tasks, we're able to get a good performance in like the first 50,000 time steps, which seems like I mean, that's a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the others, it takes it takes much more. And and so it, it, surely there must be a way that we could get, you know, push these things a little bit further. That being said, we probably are nearing the end of the Majoko timeline. It's probably time to look at some more challenging benchmarks. But yeah, if, if your goal was performance, there's still a little bit more to get there. So do you have more work lined up in this space? Um. Not necessarily directly. Of course, um, you know, if we were to happen upon something that would improve actor critic algorithms more, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is, is throw it on top of TD3 and see what happens. It's not directly the goal. But of course, like, I will admit, I'm, I'm a competitive person. So it's always in the back of my mind, like, oh, maybe we could get a little bit better and then, you know, reclaim the, the top spot as the number one algorithm or whatever. It's not the goal, but uh, we're looking at things that are related. You know, uh, DeepRL is, is definitely my research focus. And so it seems likely that eventually we'll come across something that could uh, make a difference. And then uh, the first thing I'm going to do is, uh, how does it work with TD3? I want to move to uh, another important paper of yours, Off-Policy Deep Reinforcement Learning Without Exploration. Yeah, so that was a paper I wrote with uh, my supervisors, actually, David Meager and uh, Doina Prika. And it's sort of this, this one of the first papers in recent time looking at uh, Batch DeepRL. Uh, batch DeepRL, I guess for those who, who might not know, is sort of this problem where you're given a, a fixed batch of data, so like a fixed data set, and uh, unlike other problems, there's no more interaction with the environment. So here's your data set. Uh, what can you do with it, basically? So it's similar to, I guess, imitation learning, but the data is maybe not from an expert, right? It could be arbitrarily bad. Maybe it's good. Who knows, right? And so that's an interesting problem because it's very practical. There's a lot of scenarios that you can imagine that you just have some data, and that's what you have. For example, um, I'm from the robotics group at McGill, and we have this nice aquatic robot. And so occasionally we run field trials in Barbados, which is a lot of fun, of course. But it also means if you, once you collect your data in Barbados and you come back to Canada, uh, that's all you have, right? So if you want to run an RL algorithm um, on your data, it better be a batch RL algorithm. So I love this paper. Uh, I, I saw it uh, early this year and I, I shared it around with uh, my friends who I thought would appreciate it. And some of them actually understood the importance of it, which I was, that I was super excited about. Um, I enjoyed your ICML talk. Uh, on this paper, and including your art skills, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, not a lot of people commented on that, uh, so <laughs> it's nice to hear some appreciation. <laughs> so how did this paper come about? What what led you to focus on this? Right, so yeah, maybe I'll give a little bit more on the paper. We were looking at Batcherel, but uh, the interesting thing about Batcherel is that we found that uh, it doesn't work. It, you know, it's set up as an off-policy learning problem, and uh, the first thought, of course, is, oh, we'll just run something like DQN or DDPG, one of our nice off-policy algorithms, and, you know, I'm sure it'll work well. And it turns out that it doesn't. And so how we came across this was uh, I was looking at uh, exploration, and I thought, okay, uh, if we're going to do some exploration task on with these sort of Majoko environments, um, maybe I'll look at sort of how quickly can these things learn if I were to give it the best data possible. So let's like even though it's an exploration thing I was looking at, let's remove exploration. So I'll give it some expert data. So took a DDPG agent, trained it to completion, uh, then collected some sort of expert trajectories 
and then passed that data set to a new agent. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I thought it would learn something. And it turns out that it can't learn at all, which is sort of a shocking result. Um, you know, here's expert data, now learn something, and you get literally nothing. Uh, it fails completely. So that was very, very surprising. And then we spent quite a bit of time sort of poking and prodding, trying to figure out what the heck was going on because this was so unexpected. But it turns out it's actually a very simple reason. Uh, we called it extrapolation error. And the idea is that, um, especially with these like neural networks that are generalizing, uh, if you have this finite data set, you have access to only part of the data. So for some state action pairs, you might be very certain about you know what happens with them, the reward, the value, whatever. And there's state action pairs that you've never seen before. But that means for a given state, there's actions you've seen, you haven't seen, but your uh, critic, uh, your value network, will give you an estimate for all of those actions. So uh, for those unknown actions, you may extrapolate very negatively, and you may just never take those actions, or you may extrapolate very positively, and then now your agent is selecting those actions. If your agent's selecting those actions, it has no idea how well it will actually perform. Uh, it thinks it's going to perform well, but the performance is who knows, right? So. If you have a, uh, if you give your agent a bunch of expert trajectories, it will, you know, generalize those expert trajectories to random you know, trajectories or random actions, and it will think, oh, this will also be expert. You try to take those non-expert actions, and you find out very quickly that you don't get a good performance. Um, the other problem, of course, maybe ties back to the overestimation bias problem, is that not only are you overestimating the value when you actually take it, you're propagating those values back. So we found that when you do this batch problem, you end up with a situation where the value estimate tends to diverge, uh, and then that totally destroys your learning process, and you, and you just you know your agent just fails horribly. So if I understood this paper correctly, uh, like there's all these papers in the literature going back on doing applied RL off policy, and uh, I think this work calls into question the correctness of of all those agents. Like a lot of them use like FQI, NFQ, or DQN. So, given the insights you brought you brought in this pa in this paper, like are are all those agents probably just incorrect? Um, incorrect is a big word. I think um, they definitely don't claim anything false. Um, there's nothing wrong about any of those papers, uh, but I think there's a misconception, like a general misconception about the field about what you can and can't do in in off policy learning. So. Our paper was about sort of exposing this issue of extrapolation error uh, when you're dealing with finite data sets uh, on like modern problems, which tend to be quite large. You know, you need neural networks to solve them. But when you're working, you know, you look at these classical algorithms and you're working with small domains, a small data set um, is not as much of a problem because you can still get quite a bit of coverage over like a small problem. Like if you're looking at cart pull, you don't need tons of trajectories and data points to sort of uh, have a nice coverage over the state and action space. So I assume when you look at these smaller methods like FQI that uh, initially worked off, I believe, a decision tree, you know, if maybe if they didn't scale with a small amount of data, the, the first thought would be, oh, okay, we'll just give it a little bit more data. And then, oh, look, it works. So uh, this problem of extrapolation error is really only easily seen or found when you look at, like, large problems with neural networks. So, so that's probably why we're the first people to really write a paper about it. And it's possible, of course, that there's some senior... Uh, prof out there going, ah, oh, of course I knew this was a thing. But I, at the time, at least, I hadn't seen anything on it. But to go back to your original question, it, are they wrong? I don't think so. But, in, you know, uh, people people definitely thought that Bacharel wasn't like a, a separate problem that we need to think about. Uh, I thought that if you looked up Bacharel, uh, I, I found some slides saying, like, some from, from the university saying, DQN, you know, works in a problem in Bacharel, it makes perfect sense. And intuitively, it does. 
so the paper really is sort of combating this sort of misconception that you can just take these algorithms that work on small problems and that have sort of theoretical guarantees given, you know, infinite data. Uh, you, but, you, you know, you can't scale these up with just DQN naively, at least. So we're really trying to combat that misconception, basically. So when I, when I first read your paper, I thought, wow, here we are in 2018. Actually, I read in early 2019. And uh, this is really fundamental stuff. And we're just, the field is just starting to figure that out. So at first I was like a little surprised. I'm like, really? No one knows, you know, these fundamentals. And then I was like, wow, that's actually really exciting to be here uh, at this time when people like you are just uh, figuring out these really fundamental points about, about how RL uh, really works. Yeah, it's a, it's a great time to be in the field. I think we're we're at the point where I guess DeepRL doesn't like truly work on things that matter, but like 20 years from now, maybe we'll be looking back and go, okay, that was, you know, that was the time when we figured it all out. Um, so I think, you know, there was probably an initial burst of really exciting stuff from like Rich Sutton's time, you know, in the in the 90s, where a whole bunch of cool algorithms came out all at once, and I think or at least I hope that we're on the verge of a, a whole new set of cool algorithms and that will sort of shape the next 20 years of RL. Well, I definitely think your, um, your batch work is, is historic. I don't usually say that, but I, I, I can't imagine that it won't be uh, huge, um, hugely seminal. So I'm, I'm super stoked to have you here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, totally. Uh, thanks for being here. So can we talk about how uh, BCQ works in a little more depth? Um, it uses, uh, it's, a, it's based on DDPG, is that right? Right. So, yeah, BCQ is our algorithm to deal with extrapolation error. And I'll say that when we were looking at this problem extrapolation error, my goal in creating an algorithm was um, to, to show that we understood extrapolation error. My thought was, if we can create an algorithm that solves these batch RL problems that no other algorithm can currently solve, regardless of how we get there, then it means that at least we've understood what the problem is or what the core issue is with batch RL so far. So we came up with BCQ. Um, BCQ is, is main, meant to dealt with or deal with uh, continuous action spaces, and I'll be the first to admit it's it's a bit of a messy algorithm. There's kind of a lot of moving parts going on, so it's a bit confusing. But maybe I'll, I'll take a step back and I'll explain the uh, our more recent version of BCQ, which is sort of the discrete action version of BCQ, which is quite simple. And then we can sort of double back to to what the original version looked like and why being in continuous spaces is uh, confusing. Great. Um, so the algorithm in the discrete action space is very simple. It looks essentially like DQN. The idea is that this so extrapolation error is sort of this error introduced from you know, out of distribution actions or actions that we've never seen before for a given state. So what we'll do to combat that is we'll train something that looks like an imitation module, uh, something like behavioral cloning. We'll just you know, uh, estimate for a given state what's the probability of each of the actions uh, being in the batch. And then we can just threshold, basically. So if an action is very low probability of being contained in the data set, then we probably can't generalize very well to it, and we shouldn't take that action. So we'll just eliminate it. So the final algorithm looks like DQN uh, with a few actions sort of shaved off. And uh, it turns out that sort of really helps eliminate extrapolation error, and you can do batch RL. The problem is, in a discrete action space, things get a little bit more hairy. Or sorry, in a continuous action space. And unfortunately, we started in a continuous action space, which made things difficult. So the algorithm, again, instead of uh, DQN is... Actually, I would say it's still close to DQN. But we have this problem where we need to eliminate actions that are, say, low probability of being in the batch. And we took a, a, a separate, a different approach of sort of thresholding and instead went with a sampling idea. So the idea was if we can sort of train a VAE or any sort of generative model to sort of model the batch, uh, a state condition VAE, 
uh, if you take that state and you sample actions from it, uh, those actions that we sample from the generative model will be sort of high probability of being in the batch. Uh, once you're at that point, you can then uh, just select the highest valued action. So uh, there's now this sort of learn a generative model and then sample from it, then select the highest action. Unfortunately, there's one more step to get there uh, with the algorithm, and that is what we call the perturbation model. And the idea was, suppose, you know, for some action or some state, you had seen a lot of actions. You had maybe covered the entire action space, you know, roughly. Then sampling, I don't know, 10 actions randomly would give you a very poor coverage, and you'd probably end up with something very suboptimal. One solution, of course, would be to sample even more actions. Maybe we could sample hundreds or thousands or something, but this starts to become very, like, not scalable. So our solution there was we'll allow uh, a secondary model called the perturbation model, which is essentially like an actor, and allow it to perturb any of the actions that we sample. So we'll sample a bunch of actions, we'll perturb them in a small range, so just add a little adjustments so that um, uh, we can get a little bit more value out of them, uh, and then we'll select the highest valued action. And so that way we get a, a more coverage, basically. So yeah, this is starting to get a little messy, and there's a little, there's a few other little details here and there, but that's the that's the core idea behind BCQ. Great. I mean, from my perspective, it's still uh, it was super uh, elegant considering all that it does and and how concise it is. So was was a VAE an obvious choice here? Um, would you mention other generative models could work? Would any any other models make sense here? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you think it's elegant. Um, a VAE was. The easiest choice in the sense that, uh, yeah, of course, you could swap the VAE for uh, a GAN or some normalizing flows or something like that. Interestingly enough, a VAE tends to work the best, or at least from our experience. And this is just a vanilla VAE. Uh, so, uh, of course, you could do something more intelligent. But a VAE worked nicely because um, compared to a GAN, it tends to generalize uh, worse, which is sort of counterintuitive, maybe. But if you want to sample things that are only very similar to what's in the batch, like you're just trying to memorize what's in the batch, then you actually really only want to see things in the batch. You don't want to sort of generalize things that are kind of in the batch or similar to things in the batch. So a VA worked nicely for that. And it was a little bit more straightforward to get working because GANs are kind of notoriously hard to, uh, to tune and to get working properly. So yeah, the, nothing's stopping you from selecting a different generative model. And I think it's also a bit of the weak point in the continuous version of BCQ. Getting the VAE to work properly has some challenges to it. And I suspect using a better gender model would make your life easier. There's been some follow-up work, um, for example, BearQL, where they looked at a setting uh, with only a single behavior policy. When you're doing that, it means you can now train something more similar to behavior cloning with just a unimodal policy. And then that makes your life a lot easier. Now you don't have to deal with this VAE thing. The VAE really is useful because it lets you handle with, uh, multimodality. So if you have a mixture of policies collecting the data in the batch, then um, uh, that will, it will be handled nicely by generative model. So depending on what assumptions you can make, you can maybe avoid it. Elegant, I don't know, but um, uh, it, it, it works. And that's, what, that's all we really wanted for the first version. So do you have to worry about sizing the VAE and tuning it? Um, specifically for the domain, like it, it's it really needs to memorize the whole batch, right? And have this and have a sensible sort of generalization. I guess the hope is that um, it's this, it's almost relative to the size of the batch as opposed to the size of the domain because you're just memorizing the things that are in the batch. Uh, it's definitely, like I said, it's a weak point to the paper in terms of getting it to work properly. Um, we did have a we did come up with a setting that worked across all the Majoko tasks, so it's not like you you needed so specific tuning to get it to work. 
um, but it's fragile, right? It, it, changing the hyperparameters is a nice way to get your algorithm to not learn properly. Um, and so, it, yeah, I think if you were switching to a totally new domain, um, you'd probably have to tune that element of it. Fortunately, I guess it's also not necessarily an RL problem anymore. So, you know, there's tons of great research out there on generative models, and we were using the most basic vanilla VAE. So um, I assume that just swapping it with something a little more sophisticated, which would be, of course, harder to program, uh, harder to get working, and, you know, a little bit messier, larger component, but it would probably make your life easier when actually trying to run it. The hope, I guess, is that BCQ will sort of naturally evolve as the field and, you know, nearby fields uh, just improve on their own. So thinking about how this internals work, it seems like the VAE has this sense of state similarity, and then the Q network might have a different sense of state similarity. Is there, is it, do you think there's, do you think there, they could be looking at these state similarities differently and could that be an issue or is that, is that not an issue? Yeah. Um, I love this question. This is a great question, actually. Uh, it's something we've been thinking about a lot. Is it an issue? I'll say apparently not <laughs> because uh, it still works, right? But there is a, a discrepancy there, right? Um, the VAE or any generative model is trying to measure the density of the uh, of the batch, the, the probability space or whatever. But on the other hand, what we're actually interested in is not the, the density. We're interested in sort of the generalization properties of the, the Q network. So, uh, you know, for a given state, how, what actions can we generalize properly to? And that usually will correspond to something similar to the density of the data set uh, or the distribution of the data set. But it might not exactly, right? So there is a discrepancy there. We spent some time trying to sort of build on that and see if we could improve it, uh, use that, that that sort of idea. Like maybe we can uh, take advantage more of the Q network rather than having this generative model. Yeah, it, it we never really made any super exciting, meaningful progress. I think it's an important question that we need to be thinking about, but I don't have any great answers for it. But it, yeah, I, I, it's it's definitely an interesting thing. And the other thing I'll say is that for our discrete version of BCQ is that we used uh, we shared some layers. Uh, so the convolutional layers, this we used it on Atari. The convolutional layers are shared between the imitation network and sort of the uh. Uh, the Q network, and then that helps, I guess, uh, sort of keep those similarities similar. Um, to to reuse words, but yeah, not exactly what we're looking for. So I think yeah, it's a it's a bit of an open question right now, and uh, an option for improving the algorithm for sure. Cool. And then if if our agents ever do get into states that were far from states that were seen in the batch, is it true that just all bets are off completely? Like, is there is there anything we can do in that scenario? Maybe that's a little outside of the scope of this paper, but yeah, um, it's a question that people ask a lot. So you're not alone um, in that. I think it is out of the scope of the paper in the sense that it's not exactly the problem that we're trying to tackle. And the way I see it is, you know, let's say you train a robot to to play hockey or something, and then you ask it to bake a cake. You know, this algorithm is definitely not going to be the one to save you. We really need better transfer learning methods or or better. Uh, generalization or something like that to really solve that type of problem. And then I guess that goes back to your previous question, of course, is it, once we start generalizing really well, then we need to really look at generalization more so than we do uh, the distribution of the data set. Yeah, BCQ doesn't solve it. Uh, I wish it did, but no, not quite. Yeah, that makes sense because that wasn't what you were trying to do. I think if I understand BCQ, it's just trying to keep you out of those areas. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So rather than try to bake a cake, well, you know, robot, you don't know how to bake a cake. Stick to playing <laughs> hockey for now. <laughs> That's really the core idea. So in, in your your BCQ paper, um, 
BCQ was compared to a number of other algorithms, um, DDPG, a, a discretized TQN, and some you know, some versions of behavior cloning. Um, we didn't see it compared to um, the top uh, uh, continuous actions-based algorithms like uh, SAC and your own um, TD3. And then there was, of course, a closely related paper, um, Striving for Simplicity in Off-Policy Deep RL from Agarwal et al., that showed your TD3 did really well, um, in batch setting, um, similar even beating BCQ in some cases. So, do you have any um, any comments about how TD3 uh, performs in, in batch setting? Even uh, given that, I, from what I understand, it wasn't designed for batch use. Right. Um, yeah. So it was kind of nice to see TD3 uh, do well in a batch setting. Of course, we knew that in some cases TD3 did do well because, of course, I tried my own algorithm on these problems. Um, but what it boils down to is sort of this problem of overestimation bias. So when you have extrapolation error and you're sort of, you know, uh, generalizing poorly and, and, and sort of generalizing uh, actions to be higher value than they really are, you create this problem of overestimation bias, right? And so BCQ deals with that in a, in a few ways. One, of course, is it says, you know, don't take those actions that are you know, higher value than, than we think they are. Uh, and then it also has uh, uh, some of our uh, ideas in around double Q learning and, and dealing with overestimation bias that are in TD3, we included them in BCQ, of course. And I think for some of our batch settings, the, just dealing with overestimation bias is enough for you to get like a, a good performance. So uh, TD3 does it in the same way that BCQ does it, and so um, they both do well. And so that wasn't necessarily surprising, and uh, I don't think it in any way contradicts uh, anything in our paper. I want to move um, to your more recent paper, Benchmarking Batch Deep Reinforcement Learning Algorithms. Yeah, so that was a paper um, I did uh, during an internship at Facebook, actually, and we were working with uh, uh, team Eduardo Conti, uh, Mohamed Gavamzadeh, and uh, Joel Pinot. And in that paper, we were sort of, I mean, this had come right after uh, Agarwal and Al's Striving for Simplicity, uh, an off-policy learning paper. Uh, and, and, you know, that paper had tested some of our understanding and some of, our, some of the ideas that we had about uh, extrapolation error and batch learning. So we wanted to sort of retest some of these things. And I'll take a step back and I'll say what they did in their paper. So in the Striving for Simplicity paper, uh, they had this experiment where they trained DQN start to finish and collected all the data that had, it had gathered during the entire process. So over the 50 million time steps, we looked at, they looked at, um, sorry, uh, all the state action pairs that it had ever seen, they put that into one giant data set, and they trained DQN and a few other agents on this giant data set. And it turns out, in that setting, you can actually learn quite well, basically. That raises the question is, does BatchRL work uh, in nice enough settings? Is this maybe BatchRL is only really a hard thing to do in continuous action spaces? Sort of what's going on here? So the first thing we want to do is sort of get a better understanding of that. The second thing that we wanted to talk about was um, there's a lot of there's been a, quite a few batch RL papers in in the last few months basically <laughs> the short timeline we're looking at here uh, but the thing with batch RL is it's very easy to come up with a new problem uh, there's no sort of standard batch that you're supposed to look at you can come up with a new batch for whatever paper you want right so you can write a batch that the the data is you know a lot of expert trajectories maybe it's totally random maybe there's a several behavior policies maybe it's a single behavior policy so we wanted to say uh, okay what happens we'll just look at all of them we'll look at one setting 
And we're not saying that this is, you know, the setting that you should look at for batch URL. It's just a setting. Let's just see what happens. Let's put everything on even ground and see what happens. And, and finally, I guess the third thing is to say, this is also the paper where we introduced the discrete version of BCQ, which is sort of the, the cleanest version, the one I like the most. And the conclusion from the paper was that uh, nothing works amazingly on the single behavior policy setting. Uh, so all the algorithms that we tried, for example, we tested you know DQN and QRDQN, which uh, Agarwal and Al said would work pretty well. And on this setting with a single behavior policy, less diverse data, uh, they didn't work so well, basically. Uh, we tested some other recent algorithms, and we also tested our BCQ algorithm. And we found that although it worked the best, it wasn't actually like super amazing. Like you'd hope that it would you know dramatically outperform the behavioral policy. In a lot of cases, it it just matches the performance of the behavioral policy. Uh, so it looks something more similar to say robust imitation. It's sort of uncertain about whether or not. Uh, that reason is just because a single behavior policy just doesn't give you enough data to generalize and get better performance, or you know maybe the algorithm itself is just fundamentally not you know, strong enough to really tackle these problems in a way that's like truly satisfying. But uh, either way, there's some interesting results there, and so you know we stuck it together, and uh, it's uh, now a nice workshop paper. So I'm quoting from the paper. There's one line that says it's easier to sample from uh, pi a uh, condition on s than to model. Uh, pi of a condition on us exactly in a continuous action space can you say more about that line is that is that super obvious to you right um it i wouldn't say it's super obvious but i think it's more of a property of just the the tools that we have available so uh in generative modeling of course there are ways to model sort of the the density or the distribution uh, of a data set uh, like normalizing flows or something like that um, but we do have a lot of nice techniques that just let us sample, even without modeling exactly. So in a VAE, you can't necessarily recover the true distribution, but you can sample from the distribution. So that makes it easier, essentially, to... And, and the reason why we use the VAE in the sort of continuous version of BCQ, because uh, it just makes your life easier, basically. Um, whereas getting that exact density function is, is not easy. However, in a discrete action space, it's actually quite an easy problem to do. It, you can just train like your standard uh, cross-entropy loss kind of thing, behavioral cloning kind of model, and, and you'll get some kind of estimate of it. Okay, then, and, and then going back to Ugarwal's paper, um, Striving for Simplicity, they say, they have, they have a line where they say, contrary to recent work, and they say Zhang and Sutton, 2017, and Fujimoto et al., that was your paper, 2019, um, they find the log data, DQN data is sufficient. So now you, you talked about this earlier that different data sets have um, have different properties and but is that um, does that fully explain why they got different results uh, than you did? Right. Yeah, so I think some people read their paper and thought, oh, you know, one of these papers has to be wrong. But I don't think of the papers as contradictory in any way. I think their paper is very much complementary to ours, and I think our follow-up work again is, is complementary. So like to me, the story here of the first paper was Bachelorelle is a really hard problem. You know, um, you, we need to think about it very carefully. You can't just run your algorithms naively and solve Bachelorelle. In in their work, they're maybe saying, you know, Bachelorelle works if things are sort of set up nicely. If we have huge data sets, diverse data sets, this is now a solvable problem. Which means that, you know, if you're maybe a practitioner and you're thinking, oh, I have this Bachelorelle problem, what can I do? Well, that means there's two approaches, I guess. You could you could use maybe BCQ or some batch RL algorithm, you know, to carefully deal with this problem, or maybe you could just collect a little bit more data in a, in a diverse enough way. And so that's definitely an interesting result. Uh, and I don't think 
yeah, there's, I don't think there's any contradiction there, which is nice. <laughs> um, and and I, I do think the diversity explains most of it, at least from my perspective. In the Agarwal et al. paper, they showed good results with REM. That's the random ensemble mixtures. It's mixing DQNs with uh, multiple DQNs with this, this simplex. Yeah. And, yeah. and in your paper, um, REM didn't do that well. Um, generally, QRDQN dominated it. Is that... Um, so is that again do the data data set do you think being more diverse in their in their case or or is there some do you think there's some other thing going on there right uh, yeah I guess the, the one of the things I want to say about our paper is that although we, you know we looked at a couple of algorithms and a lot of them didn't really work very well it doesn't mean that their algorithms don't work right uh, we were looking at a, a new setting so you know REM for example was designed to work well in this sort of batch setting with very diverse data. And uh, it totally does work in that setting, and it works very well in that setting. Um, so we were looking at a different setting just to see what would happen, just to see, you know, confirm some of our claims from the first paper in a, in a new setting and see what happens and make sure everything's true. Does their algorithm work? Yes, it definitely does. Is there a, a good reason for why or what the difference is? I, I'm not sure, right? Yeah, we don't know enough about their algorithm. Uh, it's very new, so I, and it's not something we tested dramatically, of course, because um, that wasn't really the goal of the paper. So I, I can't say that I, I understand, you know, all the the details of their algorithm, uh, you know, beyond implementation, of course, to really say why or why it wouldn't work. I suspect, though, that it mostly comes down to the fact that it's this new setting that that REM just wasn't meant to, to handle. Natasha Jakes was our guest for episode one. Uh, you compared uh, her KL control algorithm, and she compared her version of your BCQ modified for discrete actions in, in her paper, Way Off Policy, Batch Deep Reinforcement Learning of Implicit Human Preferences in Dialogue. So does her version of BCQ in that paper differ um, from yours? Um, it does a little bit. So actually, Natasha Natasha's awesome, basically. She reached out to me uh, after reading the paper, you know, said, oh, it's super cool. Uh, you know, we're working on similar things. Uh, and we had a nice discussion about it. And um, one thing I really appreciated is she wanted to be very fair about comparing to BCQ. So, you know, she asked me, you know, how can we do BCQ in a discrete setting? What, what, what would look like and what would you feel like is a fair comparison? And so, you know, based on that discussion, they came up with their version of discrete BCQ. Um, the key difference is that their version still relies on this sort of sampling property um, where you sample from, I mean, they're looking at a prior and somewhat of a different setting. So uh, they were sampling from this, this prior, basically and then selecting actions that are the highest valued. It turns out, of course, that if you just threshold using the, the probability distribution or the density of the data, um, you end up with something much nicer and you get a better performance. So it's not like uh, uh, the greatest comparison to BCQ, but at the time, like it's super fair. This is, you know, I really appreciate what she did. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we included her algorithm in our paper is because, okay, her algorithm's showing that it beats BCQ. Does it really, like we need to actually double check that. And I, I will say again, like their their results were really interesting, and again for a really different problem. So of course it didn't work in our setting, but uh, that's not to say at all that KL control is like some bad algorithm or something. It's a super cool paper. They have a really awesome demo, um, and you know people should read it and check it out because it's great. So yeah, we're not we're not saying anything bad about the paper, but maybe the lesson is that uh, a lot of these batcher algorithms are not general purpose like we might hope. I'm grateful to Natasha because she helped uh, me kick off this podcast and and set the bar really high for guests. So that's uh, that was unforgettable for me. Yeah, I'm happy to be following in her footsteps. 
So regarding uh, distributional agents, was the, was the choice of uh, QRDQN um, obvious here? Like, would other distributional agents uh, be suitable, like C51 or, or IQ1? Or is it, is it more because they were used in previous papers? Right. We looked at QRDQN because uh, that was the paper that they used, or that was the algorithm that they used in Striving for Simplicity. Um, so that was really like the, the only motivation. We just wanted to look at theirs. That being said, um, I do think... Uh, you know, C51, IQN would work well. Of course, after seeing the results uh, in both papers, one thought is, why does, you know, these distributional methods work better? And from what I understand, the hypothesis is that distributional RL works well because it learns a better feature representation. And under that hypothesis, it makes a lot of sense that it would work well in the batch RL problem. Because if this, you know, error, extrapolation error, is a problem that comes from generalizing poorly, then a better feature representation would help you generalize better and to more actions. And that sort of naturally would improve batch RL. Uh, hopefully that hypothesis is true. So things make sense in my head. But uh, yeah, it's, it, it was just a clear choice based on, on the prior work. Are you working on more batch stuff right now? Like, can you share anything about what you're working on these days? Um, batch RL stuff, I'll say we, we gave it a good effort to sort of take it to the next step. That was the summer, and we didn't really come up with anything super exciting that I, I can talk about with a lot of passion or anything. But I will say there's been a lot of cool work from other people in batch URL. Um, you know, I don't have paper titles off the top of my head, but uh, there's a lot in recent in recent months, and I think there will be a lot more in the future. So I'm really excited for what everyone else is doing, uh, and I think we'll see a lot of cool developments in batch URL. Uh, as far as what I'm working on, I've always been really interested in sort of understanding the relationships in all the components in DeepRL. So, uh, you know, this paper was about understanding, um, you know, wh what data do we need and, and how that sort of works into the errors and, and, and learning and things like that. Uh, but there's all kinds of different components in DeepRL and all these little things that we don't understand. And, uh, you know, why does this work? Why doesn't this work? Why is it hard to tune? And, you know, how do target networks come in and experience replay? And, and there's all these kind of weird things. And it's this big complex machine. And so, uh, you know, what I've been working on is just try to understand piece by piece a little bit more. And sometimes, you know, we learn something new and it's just not that interesting. And sometimes, you know, it leads to something really exciting like uh, uh, opening up BatchRL to new people. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's the direction I've been working on and hopefully we'll come up with some cool breakthroughs. But uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to be in RL. So uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll see something exciting from me in the future. I have no doubt. So aside from the batch the batch work and what you're doing now do you have any comments on what you find uh exciting in rl that maybe other people are working on these days yeah uh i mean i've always been a bit of a secret admirer of model-based rl maybe from the distance um i did some work in model-based rl at the start of my master's degree and, and was like well this is really hard and not working anytime soon so i, I moved on to model free and then TD3 happened, so that was fortunate. But uh, yeah, I think model-based RL is really exciting, and there's been some really cool developments in sort of combining model-free and model-based RL. And I think model-based RL has always been sort of the most intuitive and natural form of RL. It just seems obvious that it would be important. It's just how we think as humans about problems often was like this planning component. And so uh, I feel like it's going to play a huge role in, in the future of RL. So uh, I don't intend on working on it in the near future, but uh, I'm always really excited to see new uh, model-based RL papers. Am I going to see you at NeurIPS uh, 2019 in Vancouver? Let's uh, talk RL's hometown. <laughs> yeah, you definitely will. Um, we're presenting uh, benchmarking uh, uh, deep batch RL papers at the uh, Deep RL workshop. Um, so uh, if uh, you or any of the listeners uh, 
you know, are around, definitely come by, say hello. I feel like if someone uh, is listening right now and, and they say, oh, you know, I heard you on TalkRL, I should have some kind of like secret prize for them or something, but <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a poor grad student, so maybe I can just give out like some high fives or something, but uh, yeah, definitely come by and say hello. Well, I would take a high five from Scott Fujimoto any day, so that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. So uh, I'm, I'm super grateful um, for you for being here and sharing your time and your insight with all our listeners and with myself. And I'm totally looking forward to uh, hearing from you at NeurIPS and whatever you come up with next. Scott, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 